again. Uh, it's been a few weeks. Been a few weeks since I've been uh, in the pulpit, able to bring God's word. Uh, I've been traveling, kind of out of pocket for about a month now. Uh, about a month ago, it started. My family headed to the East Coast, uh, to Boston. Uh, made a family vacation out of it. Uh, the, the, really, the reason we went though is our oldest daughter Amy was elected to be part of this uh, uh, this gathering of future medical leaders. Uh, they called it the Congress of Future Doctors. It was uh, really kind of this conference where high school students who have uh, declared that they intend to go into the medical sciences, those who excel in academics, were gathered to hear some phenomenal speakers. Uh, let me just give you a, a sampling of that. There was uh, one speaker was a, a woman who, a researcher, who had helped to solve and stop the Ebola outbreak in Africa. Yeah, whoa, whoa, is right. Um, there were several speakers who were uh, college students. They're dual PhD, MD candidates at Harvard, right? Insanely intelligent, right? Uh, there were speakers who, when they were younger than Amy, Amy's 16, when they were younger than her, had won Google research contests. I mean, these people are incredibly smart, all in the medical sciences. There was a, a knight, a British knight, who's also a Nobel laureate, uh, works with third world countries in developing food so that, um, so that people have food to eat. Um, uh, my favorite presenter was a, a man who has a bionic eye. You think I'm telling you fiction now. But this is real thing, not like the, you know, the million dollar man or whatever, um, but he has a bionic eye. And the, one of the reasons he was one of my favorite is because as he addressed the, the high school students, he talked really about his faith and the role of his church community in dealing with blindness. He was born seeing, at 30 became blind, and talked about the role of, the, of his church body. Um, in, in the time and leading up to receiving the bionic eyes. So, so we were there. Uh, then, then a couple weeks ago, I shared a little about this last week in worship. We were at General Conference. That's our denominations gathering. And, and, uh, and, and we had gathered together in Fort Wayne. And I talked a little bit about that last week. And then, and then this past week, we were, uh, Prairie Camp was running. And Sarah and I had the opportunity to be out at Prairie Camp for, for several of the evening services. And it occurred to me as we were out at Prairie Camp this week, um, we, were, we were standing singing, and it occurred to me that I had been with, a, with several gatherings of many people over the last month. Like I said, the, uh, the, the thing that, the, that Amy was invited to, that was like 5,000 high school students uh, all gathered together in um, an arena. And then general conference was like over 500 church leaders from, from across the world. And then, of course, Prairie Camp was, I don't know how many people were there, but uh, a large gathering of people who had gathered together uh, to worship and to, to listen and to hear. And it occurred to me that all of those gatherings had some things in common. In all of those gatherings, people had come excited and anticipating something. It was a different anticipation in each group, but they had all come anticipating that something was going to happen. They had all come to learn. They expected that when they left, they were going to know something or, or something was going to be reinforced from their time together. Um, uh, one thing that they didn't have in common or that only two of them had in common was music. I mean, there was, there was music at the thing that, we, that, that Amy went to, but only at the last two, only at General Conference and at Prairie Camp, were those who had gathered called on to raise their voice in song. That was interesting to me. Multiple gatherings of people but only in the settings where those gatherings were Christian in nature were people called on to lift their voice 
in song. Now, if I don't miss my guess, that resonates with your experience too, right? You've gone to athletic competitions, basketball games, football games, things like that. Yes? Have you ever been called, have you ever heard everybody in the arena or in the stadium raise their voice in song, except for when Sweet Caroline comes on? Sweet Caroline. I knew someone would do it. I knew someone would do it. But I mean, seriously, have you ever been at a, at, a, at a Packers game and everybody stands up to sing a rousing round of, I don't know, something, anything? Say what? Okay, the national anthem. Thanks for winning my illustration. Okay, so let, let's take it one step further. Have you ever been in a public gathering of people that wasn't focused on Jesus Christ and the people gathered were called to raise their voice for more than one song in a row? Probably not. It occurred to me, when people gather in any setting, there's always someone or something being worshipped, getting the ultimate attention at that point. It occurred to me that only Christians in our worship are intentional about singing. The God we worship is different, and so the way we worship is different. I'm sure this doesn't blow any of your minds. This, this makes sense to you. You get it, even if you haven't thought about it before. But this is why we have this book of Psalm that we've been looking at this summer in the series we've called God Songs. We've been taking various Psalms and looking at them. And what we want to do today is to look at Psalm 100. And, and we kind of want to examine what is it about singing? What is it about worship that God desires, that God wants from us. And we're, we're going to uh, listen to Psalm 100 and, and, and tear it down or tear it open a little bit and, and see what the psalmist says about that. You can see if you'll find Psalm 100 in your text, we encourage you to bring a Bible. That's why we're, we don't necessarily print it on the inserts or um, don't always put it on the screen because the best Bible is the one in your hands. Um, so we encourage you to bring a Bible. If you need one, see me or, or someone afterwards, and we'll make sure you have one. As you find Psalm 100, you'll see that it's a short psalm. There's only five verses. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to actually read it through twice. The first time I'm going to read it and invite you to just listen. You're welcome to follow along if you want, but you'd also be welcome just to close your eyes and hear the word of the Lord. And then I'm going to make a couple comments and then we're going to read through it again. And then I'd, I'd certainly welcome you to follow along and you may want to circle things or mark things in your Bible or write in your margins. Um, but Psalm 100 is where we're going to start. So again, I'm going to start by reading it. You're welcome just to listen if you would like. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving grateful praise. Shout for joy to, Lord, to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through generations." 
Okay, now we're going to read that text a second time in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to uh, what, what really is a pretty interesting um, uh, thing that happens here in the poetry of this psalm. Throughout the psalm, in each stanza of Psalm 100, there are threefold, uh, there, there's either a threefold affirmation or a threefold invitation. Now, what I mean by that is that in each stanza, something is repeated three times that points at what the psalmist is trying to get our attention in that stanza about God. So, so what we're going to see is that even the way the psalmist writes this psalm gives us our first clue about what it means to worship God. This isn't on your notes. We're going to put it on the screen. You may want to jot it on your notes. Um, but, but, but listen to this. Worship that God desires requires my participation and reminds me of God's posture toward us. But it's ultimately about God, not me. Worship that God desires requires my participation and reminds me of God's posture toward us. But it is ultimately about God, not me. So as you're writing, writing that down, let me just tease, tease that out for a minute. Worship requires me to participate. You see, Jesus said, um, if these followers of mine are silent, even the rocks will cry out. And earlier in this summer, we saw from a different psalm, Psalm 19, that all of the created order is worshiping God and praising God. Okay, so there's this sense that everything God has created can and will and does worship God. But that's no excuse for me not to join in in worshiping God. God wants us to worship him, to get involved with singing and, and praising and, and lifting him up. And so I don't get an out. Earl doesn't get it out. When I come to church, or um, maybe a better example, when I go out to prairie camp and it's a hundred gazillion degrees above the temperature of hell and I'm sweating just by standing, I don't get to say, oh, it's too hot, I'm not going to sing this time. God expects us to participate in worshiping. We're, you'll see that a little bit more as we go. Worship that God desire requires participation and reminds me of God's posture towards us. You see, Scripture makes it clear time and time again that God's desire is to create a people for himself. Yes, that means he calls individual believers. And yes, the decision to follow Christ is one that, that each person has to make. But I don't get to be a Christian alone. God is calling me into a relationship with the people of God. And it's within the people of God that I most fully realize who God is and how good he is. God's posture towards us is one of invitation and, and an invitation not, to, not just to a personal relationship, not just to be best buddies with him, but to be part of his family, to be part of his people. And it's in that context where we most fully realize how good God is. But ultimately, worship isn't about me. It's about God. You see, too easy, and, and maybe I'm only speaking to a segment or two of the congregation with these next comments. Maybe not, though. Too easy, too often it's too easy in the worship songs that we sing to make them about me, about how much God loves me, 
about what God has done for me, about how I feel. That's not necessarily bad. The problem comes when our worship consists of first-person pronouns, I and me, and we begin to forget that worship isn't about I and me. Worship is about God. Worship that God desires balances that. For instance, uh, we sang the song, um, This is Amazing Grace. We sang that this morning. Uh, Dawn, can you put up the chorus for This is Amazing Grace? She didn't know I was going to do this. It occurred to me as we were singing this. this. We just sang these words together as a congregation. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. See, too many times we sing and we make it about me and, and, and I. There's a balance here. Now, this song goes on to say, let's just go to the bridge. I'm not picking on this song. It's just one we sang today. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy, <laughs> I don't know it without the tune. What's the next slide? Is that the next slide? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worship isn't just about, it's not about what God has done for me. It's not about how much he loves me. It's about the fact that he is God. Now his goodness expresses itself to me. He has done things for us. But our worship needs to be ultimately about God. Okay, I'm sorry, I've gone a little longer here than, than I wanted to with, with this part we're going to read Psalm 100 a second time. And uh, what I want you to do is to keep in mind what we've just said. Worship requires my participation. It reminds me of God's posture towards us. And ultimately, it's not about me. And I want you to see if you can locate these, these threefold things that the psalmist says. So Psalm 100, follow along in your text. And again, you may want to write or circle. It's up to you. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving grateful praise. Now, the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, has a threefold invitation. The psalmist is going to invite us to do something. See if you can find what that invitation is. It's threefold. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Okay, what's the invitation? There's, it's a threefold invitation. This is where you interact. Shout. Worship. Come before him. Good, you guys got this. Verse three is the next stanza, if you will. There's a threefold affirmation about God's posture toward us. Verse three, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What are the three parts of that affirmation about who God is? The Lord is God. He made us. We are his. That's God's posture toward us. Verse four has another threefold invitation. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. What are the parts of that invitation? Yes, yeah, so you got this now. Enter, that's part one. Give thanks. Praise his name, absolutely. 
And then finally, the psalmist ends with another affirmation about who God is. Verse 5, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. What does the psalmist say about God? Three things. His love is good, right? Oh, excuse me, he is good. His love endures forever. And then I heard the third one already. He's faithful to all generations. Psalm 100. So let's, uh, let's unpack each of those quickly here. How do we worship the Lord? We worship the Lord with increasing intimacy. I want you to notice that the psalmist gives us three verbs. The first one is, in verse one, okay, thank you. I heard Jim's bass, shout. Okay, let's just be honest. When was the last time you shouted? Anybody? Not, not yell, I'm not talking about yelling at someone. When was the last time you just shouted in exuberance and happiness? Yesterday at teen camp? Okay, okay, good, thank you. They said hoarsely. If I didn't know any better, I would think maybe Mark had shouted at football games, but I know he's a Packers fan, so there's not much to be exuberant about there. You're going to start shouting now in, in worship? That would be great. You're going to shout me down. Oh, yeah. Leave it to a Packers fan. So, um, truth be told, uh, we do shout when we're excited. We shout at athletic competitions, or maybe we did in our younger years, or, or, or we, shout, we shout at our kids when they do something great, when we're excited to see them. We even shout at ourselves when we accomplish something we never thought we could, or when we get through that last wall that we just didn't think we'd ever break through. We shout in excitement. It's, it's just part of our vocab, most of us. Um, some of us are more reserved and would never admit to that. But how many times have you ever shouted in worship? other than when you're trying to shout down the pastor. I mean, I'll be honest. I think the last time I shouted in worship, I probably had the word teen in my age. Like, I just, you know, like, I thought that, I guess I thought that was something we grow out of. We, we become an adult and we're no longer exuberant and worship. That's just the way adults worship, right? No! Matter of fact, the Bible is clear here. This isn't a suggestion. The psalmist says, shout to the Lord. And I don't want to be disobedient to Scripture. And I don't want to pastor a people who are disobedient to Scripture. So you, I hope you'll just humor me and have fun with this. And we're going to be obedient to the Lord. We're going to put a phrase on the screen. You are God and you are good. Can you read that? Barely. Okay. Yeah, it is kind of dark, isn't it? Can you hear it? You are God and you are good. Say that. Wow, I didn't even say shout it. Now let's shout it together. That's pretty good. Let's do it again. I know some of you, this is just rubbing you the wrong way. This is not you. Like, I can't believe the pastor is making me talk. I come, I come to church to hear him talk and he's making me shout. I'm gonna have to go home and repent. The psalmist says, shout to the Lord. And what's the next thing he says? The next verb is, starts with a W, worship. The Hebrew word here means actually to serve or to work for. 
The psalmist says, uh, serve the Lord. And there's, a, there's a, a way we're supposed to do that, right? Begrudgingly, is that the word? With gladness. This is why, <laughs> this is why we take time to announce that little yellow slip in the bulletin, right? Not just because we need people to make things work around here. Not because our bylaws require it. But because part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is worshiping through serving, through, through, through helping others, through doing things that please God. This is part of being a disciple. We say a disciple is one who knows Jesus, who is growing with Jesus, and who is going on mission with Jesus. You can't be growing in Jesus if you're not serving God, if you're not doing something to help others. If you're not doing something that points back to God and his work in you and then through you. The psalmist says, shout, but also serve. Do something for God's glory. And then there's one more verb in this stanza. What is it? Shout, worship, and come before the Lord. Now, if we're to be honest... When we shout, we often do it in big open places, maybe where there's other people shouting, and uh, we don't necessarily do it in an intimate setting, right? Like, you guys would flip out if I walked up to you nose to nose and shouted. That, that's just not how we do it. This idea of, of, of worship, of serving, of, of working for the Lord, it's, it's part of our worship but it involves frenetic activity. It involves doing things. The psalmist says, God also wants you to come into his presence. He wants you to worship him in the big open places when you're a long ways off. He wants you to work for him and be doing things. But he also wants you to come before his throne. He wants you to bow down before him so close that, that he could reach out and touch you, so close that you could reach out and touch him. He wants you to come into his presence, not just so that you can hear his voice, but, but so that as he speaks to you, you can feel his breath. You see, worship is a matter of intimacy, of drawing near to God of being in his presence so he can accomplish in you what he would like to accomplish in you. He wants you to draw near, to experience his presence, to, to know his touch, to know his voice. And he wants that for us because he is God, because he's our God. Do you remember the story of Elijah on Mount, uh, Mount Carmel, uh, the, the battle against the prophets of Baal? Do you remember this? There's a big showdown, right? Elijah said, now we're going to see who really is God. And they, they went through this thing where uh, the prophets of Baal, over 400 of them, made a sacrifice. And, and, uh, and, and Elijah said, okay, cut your, cut your sacrifice up. We're going to see if fire falls from heaven. And if you're God, we'll light your sacrifice on fire. They went, you know, um, you know basically from like mid-morning to early evening and, and did all kinds of crazy things. And, and Elijah's taunting them as they're doing it. It's just a, just a really kind of interesting story. And no fire falls. Then Elijah says, okay, he builds his altar, uh, the altar for his God, for our God, puts the, the animal on it. He says, okay, now fill up those water jars and just saturate this sucker. And so they do, they pour water all over the altar, which is insane, right? If you're going to light this thing on fire, you don't, you don't maximize the, the water that, the, that it has on it. And Elijah prays, 
Fire falls from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice, but all the water in the trench. I mean, it's just, it's just a smoldering pile. What happened then? Do you remember? The people fell to their faces, Scripture says. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Those are the exact words that the psalmist borrows here to tell us about this God that we worship. The Lord, he is God. He's sovereign and powerful over all. God wants us to come into his presence, to have this intimacy with him because he is sovereign over all. He's the only one who deserves our worship. We don't have to see a single thing that God has done for us, although we will and although we do, but we don't have to see a single thing to worship God because he is worthy of our worship simply because of the fact that he is God. This is one of the reasons that several weeks ago when we showed up at church and we had like half power or one phase or, you know, whatever, it was like half lit in here and other rooms didn't work and there was no air conditioning. It's one of the reasons we didn't say, all right, we're canceling. You know what? It's just not, I mean, it's hot in here and we can't, we can't see everything anyway and we're just going to cancel. No, we don't do that. We worship God because he is sovereign over all. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We could be worshiping in the dark, but we still worship because he is God. That's why I have very little appreciation or understanding or patience, and it's probably a character weakness of mine, but I don't, I don't, I don't really feel a whole lot of pity when someone comes to me and says, well, I couldn't worship today. Did you see the worship leader? She didn't even smile. Like, so? Maybe God was dealing with her. Who are you worshiping anyway? I don't like the music. Not enough hymns. Too many hymns. Okay. Who are you worshiping? The Lord. He is God. We worship him because he's God. I mean, listen. All throughout church history and even to our very day, men and women are arrested are persecuted, they're told, renounce God or die. And all throughout church history, up to our day, when they're told to renounce God and die, they burst into song or they burst into prayer. And so the lions have mauled them or the Taliban have beheaded them or, or, or the communists have shot them in the head. If brothers and sisters can worship God even at the threat of death, then certainly we can worship God when the music isn't as we want, when the worship leaders aren't as exuberant as we prefer, or they're too exuberant. Surely we can worship God if we don't know the words, when the air conditioning is too hot or too cold, when the seats are too soft or too hard, when we're too tired, when we have too much energy. We worship the Lord because he's God. And if any of these other things get in the way of us worshiping God, it's clear we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping someone or something else. He reminds us that we are God's people. The psalmist says we are God's people. He created us. He's our shepherd. He's sovereign. 
and we're his. We can worship him for that reason. Number three, where we worship the Lord, we, we worship the Lord increasingly nearer to him. This, this goes back to, to verse four. Again, what does the psalmist do? You probably sang a song like this when you were in Sunday school as a kid, if you were in church then. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Either I'm the only one or you don't want to encourage me to keep singing. I can't figure out which it is. Hopefully you're a worshiping God in spite of that horrible rendition. Um, let's put up the map. <laughs> Pastor Joel's not here, so I'm just going to put up a map if that's okay. It's actually more of a floor plan. Um, this is the, the floor plan for Solomon's temple. This is probably the temple that whoever wrote this psalm knew. And so when he says, enter his courts and his gates, he's, he's, the psalmist is talking about going to the temple to worship God. So you can kind of see how that particular temple was laid out. Um, you have on the outside, the outer court, you see that, Yeah. Um, that's where the people would gather and that's where they would perform their worship. Uh, inside, kind of in the center of the screen, uh, you have the temple court or sometimes called the priest's court. And this is where the priests would gather to do their ministry. This is the way God laid it out with Moses, right? There was a part where the people would gather to worship. There was a place where only the priests would go. Now, what I want, what I want you to catch is in verse four, the psalmist says, enter his gates and his courts. As far as the psalmist knew when he wrote this, there was only one court where the people could go to worship. Why would the psalmist write, enter his courts with praise? Why? Well, I, mean, I, I don't know. But I suspect, as God often does in Scripture, he was shining a light on something the psalmist didn't even realize. That there would come a day when there would not be courts and curtains that would prevent God's people from coming fully into his presence. This is what God desires in worship, that we would enter fully into his presence. The psalmist gives us a hint. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't tell us why or exactly what he means. But from our vantage point in history, we can understand that the psalmist is saying God wants us to be ever nearer to him. He wants the barriers between us and him to be removed. He wants us to do our part to continue to draw into his presence. And, and, uh, and the psalmist points to that future date, maybe unknowingly, not only in verse 4, but also in verse 5. Notice again, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This word love that you read in your English Bible is the Hebrew word hesed. The word hesed doesn't just mean love as we think about love. It refers to the way God keeps his promises. We might say covenant faithfulness. You see, as we read through the Old Testament, there were times when God made various covenants. He made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the star in the sky and the sand on the sea. He made a, he made a covenant with Noah. Never again will I flood the entire earth. He made a covenant with David that, uh, that there would one day be a descendant of David. Uh, there would always be a descendant of David on the throne and that one day there'd be a descendant of David who would, uh, who would change things as we know them. He made other covenants. And so when the psalmist says that, uh, that God is good and that his love endures, he's talking about his covenant faithfulness. We might say it like this. Even when we're faithless, 
God is faithful. Even when we make rash promises to God and forget that we made them and break them, God remains faithful. Now, I don't know, but I suspect when the psalmist wrote this, he didn't realize that there would one day come a descendant of David who would fulfill every covenant that God had made. I think he could look back. You see, actually, these words in verse 5, they come from the time when David rescued the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines and set it up in Jerusalem. The people gathered to worship, and we actually read that these are the very words that the people said in worship. The priests led the people of Israel to say these words. The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. So surely the psalmist had that in mind. He could look back and see that, but I don't know that he could look forward and see that there was coming a day when a descendant of David would fulfill and beyond every covenant that God has made with his people. When God said to Abraham, your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky and the, the sand on the sea, a descendant of David, Jesus Christ, would, would fulfill that covenant beyond what anyone could hope. As a matter of fact, we celebrate this when we celebrate communion, right? We take the bread and we read what Jesus said, and then we take the cup and we read what Jesus said at that last supper. And what did Jesus say when it came time for the cup? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the, the covenant faithfulness, the love of the Lord is good and it endures and he always keeps his covenants. And friends, beloved, what that means for us, what that means for you, is that when you chose to follow Jesus Christ, when you came to the cross and you said, my only hope of forgiveness, my only hope of ever pleasing God is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I choose to follow him, that means in that moment you entered into the covenant that God made with us and now with you at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you now as a follower of Christ, at salvation, he separated your sin from you. The Old Testament says as far as the east is from the west. He took your sin and, and he threw it into the sea of unforgetfulness. He sees you not as a sinner, but as a saint. He sees you not as a rebel, but as a child because of the covenant that he made in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that covenant that you entered into when you asked God to forgive you and for Jesus to become your savior. And as, as you continue to follow Jesus Christ, as you continue to walk that path of discipleship and Christian living, that covenant doesn't disappear. Now, if you're anything like me, you're going to do boneheaded stuff. Matter of fact, maybe today you would, you would even now you'd look back, you say, today already I've sinned. Like I had that thought that was just, that didn't glorify God. And, and I said that thing to my wife that I'm going to have to eat crow for later or whatever. Our unintentional sins don't violate the covenant that God has made with us because his love, his covenant faithfulness endures even when we are rebellious as followers of Christ and we do what we know we ought not do. God is faithful. His covenant remains. We worship God because he's good, because his faithfulness endures. And that is not 
going to change. I don't know everyone's stories here. I don't know what you came into worship carrying today. But if you're sitting here this morning and the only thing you can hear in your spirit is every way you failed God, every way you've let him down, every wrong thing you've done, the guilt and the shame that perhaps you deserve, I want you to hear that God's covenant faithfulness, his love for you, his forgiveness of you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has not changed. Confess and return. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're here for whatever reason, and you would say, I don't, I'm, I don't claim to be a Christian. I want you to know up front, this is the God we worship. If he says he forgives you, you're forgiven. If he calls you his child, it's awfully hard to change that. He'll remain faithful to you, even when you don't remain faithful to him. But if that's you, if you would say, I've been wondering in this season, I've been doing things that are wrong and I know it. God would say, just come home. Just acknowledge it. Just ask for my forgiveness. You'll find that you're still my child. I'm going to ask if the worship team would come forward. We're going to, we're going to respond by singing together today. As they're coming, beloved, I just want us to remember that God is good we worship him because he is our God. He's our king, our creator, our shepherd. He wants us to come into his presence because he loves us and that's not gonna change. And so as we sing today, if you are in a season of wandering, and if you would say, I know, I know I've not been pleasing God. Even as we sing, would you just own that? Would you just say to your heavenly father, Father, I'm sorry I've sinned. Would you please forgive me? And would you please help me to live in a way that pleases you? I'm telling you, he will forgive you because his covenant faithfulness endures forever to every generation. And that includes you regardless of what you've done and how far you've wandered. This is the God we worship. Will you pray with me and then we're going to stand and sing together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and, and we join our voices with the voices of those who have gone before us and we say you are good, Father. Your love, your loving kindness, your covenant faithfulness endures forever from generation to generation and that includes our generation. And Father, that includes me. So thank you, Lord that even when I wander, you, you welcome me back. That even when I'm faithless, you are faithful. That even when I'm not feeling it, you are still sovereign over all and I can still worship. And so Father, now as we uh, conclude our time together by raising our voice again in song, would your spirit work in us to accomplish what you would have to accomplish. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.